This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya the Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Ten sixty-six. So basically, he was explaining, first he was explaining the whole concept of when, when the Torah says if you sin a certain sins, your soul is cut off. Literally, it means you die young. So first he explained that this is not a punishment, it's a consequence. And this is something that afflicts the Jew. Non-Jews that do the same behavior don't have this consequence. But when a Jew violates the Torah, there's immediate consequences. Because he explained that Jew's essence is divine. So therefore, when you behave in a way that you disconnect yourself from the divine, there are physical consequences. Because for a Jew, there's no separation between the physical and the spiritual. You can't separate it. So if you cut yourself off, karis, you cut yourself off spiritually, so this is all miraculous. You know, what's the connection? If I behave morally, I'll be blessed. If I don't behave morally, the kudosh, the Heaven will seize, will shut down, and will stop raining. I mean, this is all miraculous. What's the connection between my personal behavior, my moral, ethical behavior, and if it's raining dollar bills, or if I'm successful or not successful, what's the connection? You know, it's not an obvious connection. But for a Jew, there is a connection, because for a Jew, there's no separation, because the Jew's essence is divine. Not only at the root, at the source, at the core, at the essence, our, our soul is divine, but we are divine. Our physical, even when the soul enters the body, as we live in this world, we live and breathe godliness. As a matter of fact, our soul is the breath of God. Our substance is the breath of God. Even if you put a paper in front of the breath, you block the breath from going, going further. So, a Jew who sins, even the slightest sin, even if it's paper thin, you don't allow the breath of life to flow into you. And therefore, something dulls inside of you. You lose that, there's a dullness that settles in. There's a certain connection, a sharp connection, a live connection that's lost. It's like electricity, you know, it has to flow. The moment you stop it, you don't allow it to flow. Then it stops. It has to constantly flow from its source, like a the living breath, the breath of life. The substance, our substance, our soul, is the breath, God's breath of life. That's our substance, that's our soul. The moment you sin... How do you stop God's flow? God is everywhere. There's no space empty of God. How do you stop God's flow? The only way to stop God's flow is if you go against His will. That's the only way. So when you go against His will, so God remains everywhere. But from our point, from our perspective, we stop God's flow. Because you did something that went against Hashem's will. So if you do a, a sin, you go against God's will, then you interrupt. That's a blockage. That's, that stops, interrupts the flow. And that doesn't allow the breath to go further. 
But then there's a lower level where even then we, st- we still remain connected. Because it says in the Torah that not only did God breathe into our nostrils, but it says God also spoke, let there be men. And the difference between speech and breath, when you speak, you can be standing at the other side of the door. But if someone speaks to you, you can hear them. It Maybe it's a little muffled, but you can hear them. The sound waves can penetrate even, even a barrier. So even when you sin, the, the connection remains. So we still receive, we still are connected. We still have that godly connection. And the analogy that he uses is it's like a rope. That the soul, where the soul enters the body, it's like a rope. One end of the rope is tied down here, and the other end of the rope is tied up there. So that connection doesn't need a constant, it's not like breath. Breath, well, electricity, you have to constantly renew it. The moment you interrupt it, it ceases. Here it's a rope, it's already established, the connection is there already. Unless I do something to disconnect it, I physically do something to disconnect, to cut the rope. And that's what happens every time you do a sin. When you do a sin, this rope is made up of 613 strands. Every time you do a sin, you muffle the sound, you weaken the connection, you cut off one thread. So the rope is there, the connection is still there, but it's a little weaker. But then when you do a sin where the Torah says you're totally cut off, for example, it says if a Jew doesn't celebrate Passover, or if you don't, if you don't eat the Paschal lamb, if you're not circumcised, or if you eat on Yom Kippur, the Torah says your soul is cut off. That's why even Jews are not observant, but Yom Kippur, they come to Shul. Makes no sense. If being Jewish meant nothing yesterday and means nothing tomorrow, one day a week, and people pay thousands of dollars of membership just to come one day a week, it, it's totally logical. But it's Yom Kippur. What do you mean? I'm a Jew. It's Yom Kippur. I have to be, I have to, it's Yom Kippur, I have to fast. It doesn't make sense, but, but this touches the whole connection. I'm touching the rope. I'm connected. I'm a Jew. I'm proud. I don't observe this, I don't do that, I don't do that, but I'm a Jew. I can't cut myself off. Not to circumcise. Not to celebrate Pesach. I'm a Jew. So when the Torah says you cut off, it touches a very deep chord. Because it affects the whole chord, the whole relation. And therefore, what happens when a Jew cuts himself off? When you cut yourself off, then there are physical consequences. You can no longer live. Because a Jew receives his life and his sustenance from godliness, from the inner. And if you cut yourself off from the inner, you cut off the rope, the non-Jew could live, but the Jew can't live. And you physically die at the age of 50 or 60. The question was, we see people today that sin, and even sins which the Torah says you cut off from your people, and they live past 60, past 70, collecting Social Security, 80, 90, good years, sweet years, happy years, productive years, no shadow. How is it possible? And he explained that this was only true during the times of the temple. During the times of the temple, the temple symbolized that the Jewish people were in a very high place, in a very lofty place. That God's presence was physically manifest in this world, was present in the holy, especially in the holy of holies, it means the entire Jewish people were in a very high level. So even a Jewish sinner was a Jew, and he received his sustenance directly from the divine. And therefore, if you do something that goes against the divine, that goes against Hashem's will, you cut yourself off, 
then you couldn't live past 50 or 60. However, now that the temple is destroyed, it's not just the physical temple is destroyed. It's a symptom. The temple is destroyed means that now our life sustenance it flows through the distortion of the clipment. It's not direct. It's not a direct flow. It doesn't come directly from the ten emanations. Now the life flow encloses itself through the shell, which distorts the reality of holiness. So you don't see, it's not clear. You don't see, you don't realize that a Jew receives his life sustenance from holiness. Even today a Jew receives his life sustenance from holiness. The core hasn't changed. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And a Jew is holy. Whether he knows it or not, that's the definition of a Jew. A Jew is holy even if he doesn't act it and even if he doesn't know it. It doesn't change the reality. A Jew, because that's your essence. But it's not obvious. It's not, you don't see it. We're not conscious because the life flow is hidden and concealed and gets distorted through the lens of the klipa. And therefore it appears that we live like, exactly like everyone else. So even when we cut ourselves off totally, there still remains... We cut ourselves off, we can still live. Just like the non But nevertheless, there still remains a connection. And that's the analogy of the rope in a different way than he explained earlier. That even when a Jew is completely cut off, you're still a Jew. You still have a piece of the divine essence. And therefore, you, you will always remain connected. And therefore, you have the analogy of the rope, that what you do at your end of the rope affects the other end of the rope in a negative way. Because you're, you schlep all that holy energy all that holy life and that holiness and that energy which you can't run away from and it doesn't disappear, it doesn't go anywhere. You could be more English than the English. You could be more American than the American. You could be more assimilated than the... more German than the German. You're a Jew. And that holiness doesn't go anywhere. All you're doing is you're taking that holy energy and you're schlepping it down into the klipa, into the place of impurity and negativity distortion, lies. You're taking the king's head, as he said in the first part of the Tanya, and you're pulling it into the toilet bowl. Can you imagine? Dunking the king's head in the toilet bowl. That's what you do. And you don't have a choice. You can't opt out. It's a consequence. It's who you are. And no matter what you choose, that's your choice. You have a choice of either receiving your life from holiness, by leading a Jewish life, thinking like a Jew, speaking like a Jew, and acting like a Jew, and leading a wholesome life, then you can receive your sustenance from holiness. Or, you can choose to receive your life and sustenance from the exact opposite of holiness. And then, you're taking this holiness, and you're energizing the negative forces. Because the negative forces, God created the negative forces. But their sustenance is very limited. It's like almost like God tolerates them. Like he holds his nose and he tolerates them. God hates ego. He hates arrogance. But he created ego. He created arrogance. But it's almost like God holds his nose and he tolerates it. Because it's necessary in order to give us freedom of choice. In order the whole human comedy and the whole human drama to make the whole life as we know it meaningful and our choices meaningful, God created this whole world. 
And the whole comedy, the whole human comedy is driven by, by ego and arrogance and self-centeredness, self-absorption. So that's, a, in order to give us that freedom of choice, God had to create something that he hates. With every fiber of his being, so to speak, and every bone in, the, every bone in his body, so to speak. God despises arrogance. A person can sin. God can tolerate it. But arrogance, even if he doesn't sin, God hates arrogance. So why does God allow it? He tolerates. See, he gives it enough sustenance, exactly what it needs, not an ounce more, not a drop more. And the analogy is like someone throws something behind your back. Like you feed your enemy. You know, I have no choice, I have to feed you. Let's say you have a prisoner of war, I have to take care of you. You know, I can't kill you, I can't, I would like to, but I can't. So, so here, take it, I don't want to see your face, I can't stand you. But I'm going to give you, I have to feed you, I have to, I have to sustain you. So the life sustenance that God gives to the forces of negativity, the forces of evil, the forces of lies and hatred is minimum. Only enough to sustain it. But what happens when a Jew comes and sins? Suddenly you nourish, you injected a whole flow of holiness, a whole flow from the source of life. You, you've, you've generated a whole new energy. You've made evil and negativity come alive. Suddenly now it expands. It has a whole new lease on life. Suddenly there's excitement in the air. Comes along the Jew and invent, creates communism. And injects a whole new life into a false ideology that almost ruined the whole world. And destroyed half of the world. Because the Jew, the Jew took his energy, that divine energy, his gift... And he poured that energy into, into the oldest, which is the antithesis of Torah, of godliness. Of. So that's the power that the Jew has. And there's no escaping. Because we have that rope. We are connected. So whatever we do is going to have a consequence. If we do a mitzvah, then we tug our end of the rope. And we accomplish tremendous things. We, we transform the whole universe. We even touch Hashem Himself. If God forbid we do something wrong, we're also tugging at the universe. We destroy the whole universe. And even Hashem Himself, we schlep Hashem, the source of life, into all negativity. And we give it a whole new lease of life. And that, that's why those who sin even the ultimate sin, where you get cut off, your soul is cut off. And in the times of the temple, you would physically die. Today, not only don't you die from it, but it actually gives you a burst of life and a burst of energy. Not only do you survive past the age of 60, but they live long life and sweet lives. They flourish in this environment. They flourish. Why would they flourish? Why are they rewarded for the sin? Because they injected a whole new lease of life into the negative forces. So therefore, they're the first ones to be rewarded. They're the first ones to nash from this whole flow of energy, from this flow of life. So at least initially, they benefit. And they find themselves that they succeed. And they materially succeed. And succeed very well. Because of this whole burst of energy and this whole burst of life, fresh, new life that they injected into the negative forces. 
So since it's all a result of the Jew, the Jew is responsible. That's why the Jew gets his reward. And that's why there's a, there's, the Jew is successful, but only temporarily. It doesn't last. At the end, the non-Jew turns into the Jew. It doesn't last. And we see that consistently throughout Jewish history. We saw that in Germany. The Jew was more German than the Germans. And look what happened. They totally turned on us. That's the story of Purim. The Jew was so assimilated into the Persian life. They even had connections in the palace. They made it. And yet, in a moment's notice, they all turned on the Jew. And just recently, ever since Oslo, ever since Israel declared two-state solution, and it tried to gain favor in the eyes of the non-Jew, and tried to be loved and accepted, and will negotiate Jerusalem, will give up our biblical homeland, will deny our Torah, what is the result? The worst anti-Semitism since 1930. As we speak, Colleges all across America, Ivy League college, colleges all across America, there's now a whole month of movement of boycotting Israel. Israel, the Jew of the world. Not only didn't it bring peace, did it bring any goodwill, it completely backfired. It doesn't work. Whenever we try to ingratiate ourselves, whenever we run away from our Torah, we run away from our conscience, from our truth, and we try to embrace a foreign truth, so maybe initially, initially, you know, you may have conferences and everyone is slapping each other on the back and you, there's Nobel Prizes and everyone is drinking champagne and everyone is excited. But very quickly, you know, in the olden days, it used to take a lot longer. Today we're living in the Pentium age. So now everything falls apart in a nanosecond. The next thing you know, thousands of Jews are dead. 10,000 10, Jews are wounded. 100,000 Jews are in mourning. Israel, a few years ago, people were terrified to, to walk into shops and to go on buses. And the whole world turned against Israel. And until today, trying to delegitimize Israel, comparing Israel to apartheid and arresting Israeli generals in England, no, no less. This is completely delegitimize Israel, trying to make a Palestinian state in the UN. It doesn't work for us. So yes, temporarily, if we walk away from our compass, from our conscience, from our Torah, and we try to cut ourselves off, so maybe temporarily there is a small party, but the party quickly turns into a, turns into a nightmare. Doesn't, the party doesn't last because there's no substance to it. There's no reality to it. It's a complete distortion of reality. It's a distortion of the Jew. It's a distortion of the truth. And it's unnatural to take holiness, to take holy energy, holy creativity, and to use it for all the wrong reasons. It, 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 it can't last. It's so unnatural that, that inevitably is going to be a backlash. But at least temporarily, the Jew can nash from this. And for the moment, you can have a party. And he says, and that's where we left off, page 1066. And this is the statement of the rabbis. In Ethics of Our Fathers, 
chapter 4, Mishnah 15, which soon enough we're going to be start reading right after Pesach. Kalman, hence the statement of our sages. Hence the statement of our sages, the blessed memory. It is not within our hands to understand the reason for either the tranquility of the wicked or the suffering of the righteous. The quotation specifies in our hands. In this time of exile after the destruction, when the wicked receive, receive added vitality through the Klippa and Sitra Akra. Okay, so it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, Rabbi Yanei says, and there's two interpretations that the Bartonudra brings to this mission. The first interpretation is, Eim Biyadenu means it is not given to us to understand. We can't understand why is it that wicked people prosper and righteous people suffer. It's not within our understanding. It's not within our grasp. That's one explanation. Now this explanation is very difficult. We do understand why wicked people prosper. It makes sense now. Till now we didn't understand. Now we understand why wicked people prosper. Because it's their wickedness. When a Jew is wicked, he's taking the holy energy and he's diverting it into the wickedness, therefore injecting all the forces of evil and negativity with a whole new lease of life. And that's why he's the king, he's the president. Because it's all thanks to him. They owe everything they have to him. And therefore they reward him. And they reward him abundantly. Please, live like a king. Here, take billions of dollars. It's all yours. Because it's only because of you that we're all having this party. Because of what you injected into us. That's one explanation he gives. Another explanation he gives is that it's not in our hands that we don't have that prospering of the wicked that they used to have. We don't experience that today. Since today we don't experience the prospering of the wicked. We don't either experience the suffering of the righteous. And he explains. Why not? Why don't we experience today, after the destruction of the temple, why don't we experience today the prospering of the wicked? Because there is a concept where it says that God allows a wicked person to prosper in this world because he wants to give him any reward that he has to receive, he should receive, receive in this world. So he sh- there shouldn't be any reward left for him in the next world. In other words, a person who's so evil and really all he deserves is punishment. But because he did some good deed in his lifetime, and God doesn't overlook even the smallest good deed, so to reward him for that good deed, so God gives him his reward in this world. Here, I'm going to make you a billionaire in this world. Go, have fun, enjoy. But it's all over. I mean, it's very temporary. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing godly. And in the world to come, it's going to be all punishment. One time the Gerer Rebbe was riding, got a ride with a very rich Jew who didn't believe in anything. And he asked the Rebbe, he says, I don't understand. It says in the Shema, the Jews read twice, once in the morning and once every evening, 
It says, if you will obey my commandments, you will be rewarded. And if you don't obey my commandments, you'll be punished. He says, Rabbi, look at me. I violate all 613 commandments. And look, I'm wealthy, and I'm prosperous, and I'm powerful, and I'm influential, and I live a beautiful life. So the Rebbe said, you are quoting the Shema. Obviously, that means that you're familiar with the Shema. That you, at least once in your lifetime, you read the Shema. The reward for reading the Shema once in your lifetime is more than all the money in the world. So God is giving you the reward for your one time reading the Shema. But that's not, that's not the real reward. That's not, that's not the real reward. The real reward is something that lasts, something spiritual, something godly thinking. So the Mishnah says that today we don't have that kind of prospering where the wicked prosper only in order to pay them whatever good deed, little good deed they once did to, to, get, to get it over with. And okay, like, let's, let's throw them a bone. Let's finish with that. And then we can start with the, with the real thing. We don't have that today. The times of the temple, we had that. Today, we don't have it. On the other hand, we don't have the punishment of the righteous. What does it mean, the punishment of the righteous? It says sometimes there's a righteous person who's so righteous, who's so pure, and yet he's suffering. The question is, why is he suffering? If he's so righteous and so pure, why is he suffering? And the only reason he's suffering is in order to elevate him. They should get even a greater reward in the world to come. So therefore, he's going through a suffering. And the Talmud says, how do we know it's that type of suffering? It's because when, when it doesn't stop a person from studying Torah, if it's a type of suffering where a person can't study, can no longer study Torah, then that's punishment. But sometimes there's a suffering where a person can still continue to learn Torah, but he's going through a hard time, he's suffering. That's a suffering out of love. When a person knows that he's righteous and he hasn't done anything wrong, and inside, he's inside like outside, no skeletons in his closet, and he's outside like inside, 24-7, he thinks like a Jew, speaks like a Jew, acts like a Jew, and is totally immersed in Torah, and yet he's suffering. This is suffering of love. God is doing it out of his love. He wants to elevate him to even a higher level. And he says, first he says, first he starts out, we don't know, we don't have today the prospering of the wicked, and we don't have the punishment of the righteous. Why the end? Why is one even end is less obvious than the other because prosperous of the wicked that we can see. We know he's wicked. He's acting wicked. And nevertheless he prospers. That's something we can see. Punishment of the righteous, how do we know he's really righteous? Maybe the whole thing is a facade. How many times do you hear, you know, you think a person is righteous and then you find out <laughs> far from it. <laughs> Nothing can be further than the truth. Yiddish, righteous, is called frum. Frum is an acronym for four Yiddish words. Fill riches of insect mitzvahs. A lot of wickedness and, and, and small mitzvahs. Sometimes people just act. It's a good act. A public act. But the reality behind the act is that it doesn't match up. So if you see a person suffering, a righteous person, you wonder to yourself, maybe he's not so righteous. That's the proof. He's not so righteous. Why is he suffering? Maybe he's not such a tzaddik the way he seems he is. God, because he can't fool God. You can fool us. But obviously, if he's suffering, God <laughs> knows the truth. 
But, so, but he says, even, even, you see a righteous person is suffering, give him the benefit of the doubt. If you see he's righteous, give him the benefit of the doubt that he's truly righteous. And why is he suffering? It's a suffering of love. God is doing it out of his love for him. Not any punishment, nothing negative. On the contrary, he wants to elevate him to even a higher level. In the world to come, will get even a greater reward. So Rabbi Yane says, today we don't have either extreme. Why don't we have either extreme? He says, we don't have either extreme because we don't have extremes today. We're not the wicked. Before the temple, you read the Tanakh, you read the Bible, there were some pretty wicked fellows there. I mean, really wicked. All the way with them to an extreme. So we're not that extreme. Today you don't have one extreme, you don't have the other extreme. We're not that wicked. But we're also not that righteous. So you don't find that a totally righteous person suffers because we're not that righteous. So that type of suffering of love, you don't find today. That type of suffering where God says, let me just pay him off the few good deeds that, that, that he has done in order that, I sh- that he'll, in the world to come, he'll have all punishment. We don't find that either. Because you don't find people are totally evil. Or people are totally righteous. It's rare. On the whole, we're somewhere in the middle today. In the middle ground. We're not one extreme, we're not the other extreme. So again, according to this explanation, it's very difficult. Because al Rebbe just said that there are people today who sin, the ultimate sin, a sin where your soul gets cut off, and yet not only don't they die, isn't their life cut off? They live past 60, and they live prosperous life and sweet life. So we see that we do have this type of prospering today. So why does the Alter Rebbe say, so why does the Mishnah say that we don't have it today? According to Alter Rebbe's explanation, we do have that today. But Alter Rebbe is coming to address a question. The question is, based on this explanation that he said here, then exile should not be a time of suffering. Exile should be a time that the Jewish people should be on the top of the world, should completely prosper. Because what's the meaning of exile that we sin? That's why we're in exile. That's why God destroyed the temple. If we're sinning and we're adding all this holiness and holy energy into the negative forces, the Jewish people should be all the Forbes for 100, or all be Jews. We should be on top of the world. We should prosper. And obviously, for 1900 years, that wasn't exactly the case. Jews were downtrodden. Jews were persecuted. Jews were chased, kicked out from community to community. The poverty of Europe, it was indescribable. According to this explanation, the Jewish people should have prospered in exile. And yet exile was a time of suffering, not a time of prosperity. Why? When a Jew sins, we should prosper. And that's what the Alter Rebbe is coming to explain, he says. He's not coming to explain the mission and ethics of our fathers. Alter Rebbe is not a commentary on ethics of our fathers. The Tanya is not a commentary on ethics of our fathers. It's true, with every explanation in Tanya, 
it illuminates, you can understand ethics of our fathers, you can understand the Talmud, you can understand many other things. But that's not, the purpose of the Tanya is not to act as a commentary to ethics of our fathers. Al Rebbe is coming to explain and address this question, that based on this explanation, how is it possible that today, in exile, the Jewish people suffer? And as the commentaries ask on the Mishnah, what's Rabbi Yane coming to tell us? That today we don't have, we don't find evil people prosper? We know that we're in exile. You're coming to tell us something that's obvious. We, we're all suffering. We're not prospering. What are you coming to tell us? The obvious. What, 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 we need Rabbi Yane to come to tell us. You should know that, you know, we're not prospering today. Oh, really? You noticed. We're downtrodden. We're, 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 we're rejected from place to place. We're... Jews were not allowed to go into business. Jews were not allowed to earn a living. I mean, it, it, it was horrible. So you have to tell us that. I mean, what, what are you coming to teach us? So the Al-Tarebi says, this is what the mission is coming to teach us. The mission is coming to teach us. And here he reconciles both explanations together. It's not within our hands to understand. Why is it that we don't have that prospering of the, of the wicked? The truth is, logically, based on this explanation, the Jewish people should have prospered in the times of exile. And we should have been on top of the world, kings of the world. Because any, any increase in energy in the world is a result of the Jew taking his holy energy, which comes from the source of life, and injecting that energy into the forces of negativity, giving a whole new lease of life into the negative forces. So the Jew should be the first one to benefit from that. And enjoy the party. Have fun while the party lasts. And yet we find it's not so. Why is that? That's what he says. We don't understand. It's not logical. It makes no sense. You're right. It should have been that the Jewish people should have prospered in the times of exile. But we don't understand why. But a possible explanation could be and this coincides with the second explanation of the Bartanur in the mission. A possible explanation is because, like he said earlier, since we're not totally evil and we're not totally good, he said when a Jew chooses to act in a wholesome way, to speak in a wholesome way, to think in a wholesome way, to think like a Jew and act like a Jew, then we receive our life from holiness. When a Jew chooses to act in an unwholesome way, to think and speak and act in an unwholesome way, then we choose to receive our life from the opposite of holiness. And we take that holy energy and we distort it and we schlep it into unholy, into unholiness. But since we're a mixture, we're not one extreme, we're not the other extreme. So therefore, we don't have the prospering of the wicked. Because we're not totally evil. Were the Jews to become totally evil, God forbid, then you would have to prosper, as he explained here. And it would make sense that we should prosper. And maybe those individual Jews who did, did prosper to that extent. But since we're not that way, most Jews are not that way. Most Jews have a lot of good to them. Do Jewish, think Jewish, act Jewish. So therefore... We're, we're in between. We're in no man's land. We're nishtah nishtah. The question is, how about the moment of the destruction? 
that moment when God poured his wrath and destroyed the temple, surely the Jewish people reached their lowest level, their nadir. At that moment, why did the Jewish people suffer so much? Over a million Jews lost their lives. It was total devastation, total destruction when the Romans destroyed the temple. 1932 years ago. And the answer is, because the act of destruction, that alone is an atonement. It says once a Jew receives his punishment in court, when the Torah says you get lashes, you sin and you get lashes. Once you get lashes, you're forgiven. You, your slate is clean, your record is wiped, clean, you're fresh. So at that moment when God destroyed the temple, that was a cleansing for the Jews. So therefore the Jews were cleansed. So they were cleansed from the clipper, from the negative, and therefore they no longer were sustaining the negative forces. And that's why they didn't prosper at that moment when the temple was destroyed. And later on, as life developed, the Jewish people, most Jews, have a mixture of good and evil. Now the Jews in general as a whole can never become totally evil. The Jew, the core of the Jew, the essence of the Jew, Yisrael, the Jewish whole, the Jewish community, at its essence, at its core, always remains pure and whole. Even in exile. And we receive our sustenance from holiness. And now even our physical survival is totally dependent on holiness, on how vibrant our connection with Hashem is. But we're talking about the individual Jew. The individual Jew. So they're right. There were Jews in history who have totally disconnected themselves from the Jewish people. And they indeed did, indeed did prosper. For the moment. Not for long. But temporarily, while the party was on, they indeed got the first portion. They got first class. Because they were the ones who made the whole party. As a, re- a result of their turning away from the Judaism and taking their holy soul and dirtying, soiling their holy soul, and taking all that holy energy and pouring it into all that negativity, they created the party. And because they created the party, they were the first ones to benefit from the party for the moment, temporarily. But most Jews, even most individual Jews, we're proud Jews. We're proud of our Jews. And we have some good deeds. <laughs> At least we have some good deeds. We're not totally one extreme or the other extreme. So because of our good deeds and because we receive our life from holiness, that's why we don't have that prosper today. Because we're more middle of the road. Not like in the times of the temple, when you had individuals who were like really hardcore evil, 100%, almost like 100%, went all the way to the other extreme. And during the destruction of the temple, a majority of Jews were that way. And that's why the temple was destroyed. But nevertheless, the Jews did not prosper. They suffered. Why? Because... This, this, the destruction of the temple was a cleansing. And therefore it cleansed them, and therefore they no longer gave sustenance to the negative forces. And that's why they did not prosper. So he, and he says, this is only true when he says in the time of exile after the destruction, because there are exiles before the destruction. During the Greeks, there was the Greek exile, but they were, was, this was before the destruction. 
It's only after the destruction, like I explained earlier, when, once the temple is no longer here, it's only then that this principle is in operation, that this principle works. Now that there is no temple, now when a Jew sins, so then we sustain the negative forces, and because we are the ones who are sustaining the negative forces, we're paying for the party, therefore we get the first pick, and we get the best uh, choice, and we enjoy the party the most, while the party lasts doesn't last too long, but while the party lasts, we benefit. Okay, continue, page 1067. This is an expression of the exile of the Divine Presence, as it were, during which time the life force emanating from the latter hay flows into the klipo. Um Hashem's granting supplementary measures of life force to the chambers of the Sitra Akra that He despises. So we force Hashem. That's why Hashem is a gambler. Because Hashem gambled on us. Because he really put his fate in our hands. He put himself in our hands. He tied himself to us. And whatever we do, we schlep Hashem with us, whether we like it or not. So if we choose negative, Hashem is there. And we schlep Hashem with us. So we schlep his energy, his divine energy, we schlep in a place that he hates and he despises. He's in exile. He's in pain. We exiled him. Imagine you forced someone, you forced a cultured, civilized person to live amongst barbarians. So we take Hashem, we take His presence, His divine energy, and we force Him to live in a place that He despises, a place of lies, of arrogance, of self-absorption, of ego. Hashem is with us. He has no choice, so to speak. He put His lot in our lot. He put His fate in our hands. Hashem is a gambler. Because then, could you imagine if we make the right choices? How meaningful it is. When we do the right choices and then, we, and then we redeem Hashem and we elevate Hashem and we restore the Shekhinah back to its proper place. Imagine the joy. The joy of bringing Hashem back home. Taking the king. Imagine the king was in captivity and you rescued the king from captivity. Is there a greater joy? Can you imagine the reward that you get? So everything is in our hands. If we realize what's at stake, and this is the whole theme of this part of the Tanya is Teshuvah. In order to do Teshuvah, you have to realize what's at stake. Who cares? I do sin, I don't sin. What difference does it make? I think like a Jew, I don't think like a Jew. I think positive, I think negative. I speak positive, I don't speak positive. I say a lie, a white lie, I don't speak a lie. I do the right thing, I don't do the right thing. What's the big deal? Who am I? What difference do I make? Who cares? Who cares? What difference do you make? Do you realize what's at stake here? The fate of Hashem Himself, the Hey, Hashem's divine name, Hashem's divine, is an, up to us. So whatever we do has such consequences. Unless a person realizes what's at stake and the gravity, what's involved, then you can't really do Teshuvah. What do you mean, I regret what I did? I don't think I did something so terrible. What difference does it make? Who cares? Why take it to heart? What does it matter anyway? If you have that attitude, then you can never do Teshuvah. Teshuvah is only if you realize what happened, what you did, what we've done, the damage that we've done, the hurt, the pain that we caused. We took Hashem, took His head and put it in the toilet bowl. We took Him and sent Him to live amongst barbarians, live in exile, Hashem despises and hates. And we forced Him there. Then you realize, now I want to do Teshuvah. Now I want to, I want to redeem. I want to 
redeem Hashem, release Hashem from his prison, from his concentration camp. I put Hashem in the concentration camp. I want to take him back. I want to take my soul back. My soul is in pain, is in agony. So it's only then when you understand the weightiness of what's involved that you can have a genuine regret and you can have a genuine resolve. Hey, I'm not going back there. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> I just don't have the heart. I can't do it. I just can't do it. I can't do it to myself. I can't do it to my soul. I can't do it to Hashem. I just can't. It's too, it's too real. When the sinner repents appropriately, he then removes from them the life force that he had drawn into them through his deeds and thoughts. For by his repentance, he returns the flow issuing from the Shekhinah to the proper place. This then is the meaning of the teaching of the Zayar quoted in chapter 4 that Teshuvah He, the return of the lower He from exile. That the lower level of repentance consists of returning the Shekhinah, which is represented by the letter He of the Tetragrammaton from its state of exile. Everything is in the Hebrew word. Teshuvah, the Zohar says, is Tashuv. You have to return the He. You have to return the hay from Hashem's name. Because when you sin, you disconnected the hay from the rest of the name, from Hashem. You took that energy, the Shekhinah, and you put it into the toilet. You disconnected it. So therefore, you put it, you send it into exile. So returning means, by returning, you're restoring. You're returning the hay to its proper place. It becomes part of the divine. It becomes restored, part of Hashem's name. Now Hashem's name becomes complete. So that's the meaning of the Shekhinah. So it's only when a person understands, a person who has no understanding of the inner workings of a Jew, of a Jewish soul, what makes us tick, who we are, what animates us, what gives us life, what, how we're connected. And when you sin, you become disconnected. And it's more than being disconnected. You're actually taking that energy and, and uh, pouring it down in all the wrong places. Then, only then could you really do Teshuv. Only then... Could you sincerely change inside and make a decision that I'm going to change? I'm going to do to show. As the verse states, the Lord your God, the source of your soul, will return those of you who return. This means that God himself will return within your return. So it says Hashem will return, bring back, es so it seems like a redundant. So the Talmud says what it means is God will return together with those who return. Because the Talmud says, the Torah says, Veheshev. Veheshev means He will return. God will return. Instead it says Veshav. God Himself will return. God Himself will return with those who return. Because when we are in exile, God is in exile with us. Where does exile begin? <coughs> Exile begins when we sin, when our soul is in exile, when our soul is in exile, when we're disconnected from ourselves, and we take all our energy, and we completely abuse it and misuse it. And then, when our divine spark is in exile, we also schlep the Shekhinah, God's Shekhinah, the general Shekhinah also goes into exile. And when we do Teshuvah, not only do we return and restore our godly spark, it should be true to its own essence. But by doing Teshuvah, we also return Hashem. We turn the Shekhinah. God's presence also returns and is restored. Okay, continue. Page 1068, our sages. Our sages have commented on these verses. 
scripture does not say he shall bring back, but that he himself will return. The verse is telling every Jew, when you repentance, you extricate yourself from your own spiritual exile, you will thereby liberate your God, the Shekhinah, the source of your soul, from his exile. So we're getting deeper into Teshuvah. And uh, next week, the plot thickens. <laughs> um, start chapter 7. And in the middle of chapter 7 and chapter 8, he starts discussing the higher level of Teshuvah. This was the lower level of Teshuvah, but then there's also a higher level of Teshuvah. But um, we'll learn next week, we'll understand why what difference does it make having this understanding of the Shuk? For thousands of years, Jews did not have the Tanya. And they didn't understand the depth of Teshuvah. This whole concept that the Jewish soul is made up of God's divine name. We have the divine name within us. Our soul is comprised of the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He, the letters of God's name. This is our substance. This is the breath of life, the divine breath of life, which constitutes our being. And we are like a rope, and we're connected. And therefore, our, everything that we do has consequences and affects Hashem and affects the divine. And we channel all that holy energy into the, into the negative. And we create distortion and confusion in the world. We increase the confusion. As it is, God created confusion and distortion, but that's limited. When a Jew acts confused, and a Jew acts in a way that's contrary to his essence, we create, we create new confusion. We increase the confusion and the chaos in the world. And the world becomes so unclear and distorted and twisted. And because the world becomes twisted as a result, we benefit from that twisting. The Jew prospers. The wicked one prospers. And he can live past 60 and even live a sweet life and a prosperous life and a successful life. And therefore, when you do teshuvah, you write things, you correct things, you bring everything back to its proper place. You're just returning everything to its proper place, to its natural place, where it belongs. When godliness is godliness, and what's the opposite of godliness should be separate. But even before we understood all of this, we always knew the concept of teshuvah. You do teshuvah, you did something wrong. And therefore you turn to Hashem, you say, Hashem, please, I was a rebellious child, please, I want to restore that relationship again. Please, take me back into the house. You threw me out of the house, I threw myself out of the house. I went a while, I ran away, and please, I want to come home. And that's the essence of the Teshuvah, very simple. What difference does it make now that we understand the whole idea of Teshuvah on a much, much deeper and a much more profound level? How does that change the basic, simple Teshuvah where you, you restore that relationship, you come back home, you're in again, you, you, you deserted the army, and now you're back in. You proclaim your loyalty, I'm back, I'm sorry, I'm back, here I am. Does it make a difference? And we'll learn next week, yes, it makes a huge difference. It makes a difference in the Teshuvah. And... Um, makes the truth a lot easier and a lot more genuine. To be continued next week. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.